Welcome to Inside the Castle, the podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm one of your hosts today, Angie Fryermuth. And I'm Aaron Snyder. Today's guest is Mr. Jamie Pinkham, the Principal Deputy for the Assistant Secretary of the Army Civil Works, and he has been the Acting Assistant Secretary of the Army Civil Works uh, since joining the organization. Thank you for joining us here today. Uh, It's my pleasure. So for today's episode, we're learning more about the Assistant Secretary of the Army Civil Works, uh, their priorities, and really how this office relates to the Corps of Engineers. But before we get started, Mr. Pinkham, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to be in this position? I'm from Indian country, and uh, I, I am an outsider to the federal government and the um, the Army. I was born on an, uh, in Nespers country in uh, the state of Idaho, but actually grew up on an Indian reservation in central Washington and eventually went off to college. Uh, and I went to Oregon State University, and I was a forester with a minor in engineering, and I was living the good life. Um, laying out clear cuts and wearing suspenders and putting out the forest fires, but things changed. I began to long for the the distant voices from the land and and the people who raised me early in life, and it was time for me to return to Indian country. So I started making my way back, uh, eventually landing a job back home in Idaho with the Nespers tribe where I was running their forestry program uh, and natural resources and, and wanted more. So I took the leap of faith into tribal politics, was elected to two terms to tribal council right when we were expanding our enterprises. And I was the treasurer as we were building new casinos and launching other businesses. So my my job changed from natural resources to fighting for tribal sovereignty and uh, gaming and economic development and, and a variety of other issues. Um, And so I was having the time of my life running this marathon, uh, the Nispers Tribe Marathon, but sadly I stumbled and a divorce crossed the finish line before I did. I needed a break. I needed a change. So I took an opportunity to move to Portland, Oregon and work for the Trust for Public Land. Uh, Not long after that, I needed a real break. And so I, I took a short sabbatical for nine months to work with the people and the places I care the most about and, and, and causes that mean the most to me. And one of my projects was uh, in the Yukon of Alaska. And so while I was in the Yukon, I stumbled upon this beautiful site and interned uh, with this native organization. And I asked for her story. And she was telling me her story about um, you know, how she returned to the, her homeland the same time I returned to my homeland and she wanted to reclaim the language, reclaim the lion, reclaim the rights of life, um, the rights of self-rule, and but her country was far different. I mean, it, she wasn't from a native nation; she was from the country of Latvia. But the, this, the similarity in our stories um, in our, our, our journey was really compelling. And uh, on my sabbatical, I fell in love again and um, uh, flew off to Latvia, spent time with her in Latvia, proposed, and we got married. Came back, and my sabbatical was over. With a new bride, I needed to find a new job. Uh, So I went back to work, uh, working in the Columbia River Basin on salmon restoration. I was working for the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission. And then, you know, just something just just extraordinary, weird actually happened. A foundation in St. Paul approached me and said, why don't you come work for us? And and I was asking, why me? I don't know anything about philanthropy. Hell, I can barely even spell it. And the president of the foundation said, um, he goes, I've got about 30 people in St. Paul who know philanthropy, but none of us know a damn thing about Indian country. 
especially tribal politics. So uh, they recruited me and I spent eight years in St. Paul helping the foundation design and implement uh, a program to partner with tribes in strengthening the governing institutions. So we're doing constitutional reform, election reform, revising judicial systems, and, and we're running a leadership program. And after eight years, it was time to move back west. So I became the executive director of the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission, where I found myself really working more and more with the Corps, albeit on very contentious issues around uh, hydropower operations and flood risks uh, and its impact to treaty protected resources like salmon. And then December of last year, I got a call out of the blue asking me if I'd be willing to work for the Biden administration as the principal deputy assistant secretary at Civil Works and you know, asked to serve, how could one say no? So that's how I got here. That's great, thank you. Yeah, I always find it interesting that if we follow our passion and what we truly uh, believe and kind of get grounded again, that you know, our work tends to find us. So um, it's very exciting to hear the path that got you to where you are today. I was gonna say, um, what really for me it, it, it was about was a combination of stumbles, blind luck, and leaps of faith. For me, the, the, that recipe worked. <laughs> it may not work for everybody, but you know, it seems like every five to eight years, I'm changing business cards. Well, speaking of changing business cards, you weren't in the office very long, and you became the acting assistant secretary to the Army for Civil Works, and you've been in that role um, since you you started, really. And so, uh, what has been the biggest surprise as as you've been functioning as the acting assistant secretary of the Army for Civil Works? My biggest surprise really is is scale. As the outsider. Uh, my background really dealt with the contentious and at times adversarial issues in the Northwest. You know, again, narrowly tailored around hydro operations and flood risk as it relates to the tribal treaty resources. And so early on, I asked General Graham to help me in filling my blind spots. Uh, and my blind spots were in areas of, of coastal resiliency, deep port navigation, and, and storm risk. And, you know, the vital role that the the, the core plays in, in preparation, response, and the recovery after storms. And believe me, on each one of these trips, most of them focused um, on the Missouri River and east. My, my eyes just kept opening wider and wider, gaining an understanding of the unique regional challenges that the core is addressing, the importance of partnership and success, the level of talent, the diverse talent in all these uh, business line that the core deals with, including these centers of expertise that the core uses, places like Erdic that not only inform the core but help inform local communities as well as you know their development of strategies to responding to an ever changing world. So that scale was really an eye opener for me. Yeah, I mean, I think for even for me, I've been with the core for eighteen years, and I'm always amazed at the the different things that the core is involved in, the things that the core does. And and before I started working from the core, I didn't even know that the core of engineers existed. I literally stumbled across them in a job fair, and now I'm like, wow, this is like the most underrecognized organization in the country. They have such a huge impact on you know not only the flood risk, but just the navigation mission and getting goods and services to people at you know and reducing those costs. So. 
earlier you talked a little bit about the the people, places, and causes that are important to you. Um, so I wanted to to kind of to feel you out a little bit more there and and get a better understanding of you know what is your your passion and what's your vision for the Corps of Engineers um, in this current role. Darren, I take it as kind of they're not necessarily connected. What my passion is. Well, no, I, I, I you're right. You're right. Let me tell you where where my passion comes from and uh, why that passion contributed my, to my decision to come here. I grew up poor on an Indian reservation, um, but my fortunes lied elsewhere. My grandparents lived just down the dirt road from us, and so I was blessed with two fathers and, and two grandmothers raising me. And growing up that way taught me humility. I was raised to depend on the bounties that the natural world provides, the foods, the medicines, uh, firewood for heat, rocks for our sweat house, all the bounties and the seasons that that change and bring these different bounties to us. And because of growing up poor in that clustered, in that small family that we had, you know, I learned the meaning of service that others depended on me. And, and also I learned resilience. And so my earliest memories are plodding behind my father, my grandfather, hunting elk in the back country. You know, I could barely even walk back then. I just remember kind of these faint memories of crawling over logs and, and the chill of the air uh, hunting elk and sitting around the campfire where my grandfather would, would tell these stories. And he sang the old songs. And, and in the background, you could hear the elk bugling and, and the coyotes howling. And, and those experiences with my two fathers uh, would resurface throughout my life. And for me, it framed a passion for all things wild untamed rivers, wild salmon, wilderness, wolves. So this, this interdependency between humans and the natural world is, is where my passion comes from. Then growing up in kind of in this disadvantaged community early in life, you know, and, and years of, of, of struggle for, for justice and equity. Uh, so I bring that into this position. And I was taken by the administration's commitment to these ideals that I have lifelong, real hands-on experience with around environmental justice, around disadvantaged communities. And so in, in accepting this job was to see what can I do to help the Corps of Engineers in adapting to the priorities that really are coming from this administration. I'm pleased with, with uh, my experiences on the ground with the, the staff from all levels and their commitment to make a change when it comes to environmental justice and um, support for disadvantaged communities. Speaking of the administration focus areas, you know, how do you see the Corps assisting with, you know, these focus areas like climate change, environmental justice and equality um, and, and you know, infrastructure investments? One of the, the things, again, that I recognized early on, uh, the strengths of the core is in their partnerships. And the more that we can build upon these partnerships, uh, relying on local communities to help inform us uh, so that we make better decisions, are, there is, is a good place to start. When we look at uh, how are we going to adapt to the local issues that arise around climate change and and social justice, uh, even when we get to Justice 40. 
So uh, I see that change is going to be in partnership with the communities that you know are on the front lines and, and best know how these impact their communities. Yeah, I think it, it's really important. We've talked on this podcast a lot about just hearing the perspectives of others. And it's great to hear your perspective and your roots and where you came from and how you got to this position. Uh, it's really exciting to, to for me to see that and I'm sure for our listeners as well. One of the questions I wanted to pivot a little bit away from, from the history, but talking a little bit more about the, the Corps of Engineers and how we deliver projects. Uh, obviously, President Biden signed the infrastructure bill here in, in November. That's a huge bill for the Corps of Engineers. I think it includes something like $17 billion of, of work. And, you know, as you know, the, the Corps as an agency, we're a large agency, but our typical mission is something like six to seven billion dollars a year. Uh, we get this big, large influx of funding and really trying to look at what tools we have out there to deliver these missions in partnership. And I know you had the opportunity to go up to Fargo uh, and, and Moorhead and visit the, the Corps only P3 project up there. And so I kind of wanted to get a feel you out. And P3 is a passion of mine, so I'm maybe a little biased here, but I wanted to get your feelings on, you know, innovative financing is, is a focus area for us as our revolutionized civil works team. Um, and we just wanted to kind of hear your thoughts of both where, you know, where we're headed with public-private partnerships and uh, things like federal loan programs, the WIFIA or SWIFT-P program, as we call it, and seeing what your perspective is on the future of those types of tools to help us implement things such as this large infrastructure bill. Well, believe me, uh, relationships matter, partnerships matter, and, and you look at fargo Millerhead as being a success. But one of the things with, with, with partnerships is um, uh, making sure that our expectations are aligned. Um, that we're there during the long haul. You can't just be a partner once and walk away. We're talking about long-term partnerships because we'll always be in a, in, a, in a state of change. And our partners are gonna depend on us to be creative in the tools that will help sustain partnerships. And I see new tools ahead. WIFIA being one is, WIFIA will provide us an opportunity once we clear the internal process is you know, helping private operators of, of, of dams and renovation, replacement, and perhaps even removal of dams to make communities safer, or in, in some cases to create more resilience around water supply in our communities. Big project. Um, and with the infrastructure bill, you know, there's going to be resources to do that. We, we need the tools to do that. And I, I see WIFIA as being one of those tools. Uh, other tools that I feel we, we, we can look at, in, in some cases, we benefited from continuing contract clauses to have long-term partnership. Uh, we need to explore how we can build that uh, into uh, more of our relationships. And the other area is, you know, I, I'm hopeful that we'll begin to see that there are these kind of non-traditional partners. We, we, we rely on our traditional partners, which are the communities with flood districts, um, around navigation, but I'm seeing new partners arising out there with just as much sophistication and capabilities. And, and in particular, I'm talking about tribes and what tribes can help in delivering healthy ecosystems and aquatic restoration and, uh, uh, you know, adapting to the, the changing climate conditions and accommodating uh, changes that are necessary for flood risk management. So I, I'm hopeful that we'll begin to expand our partnership lens and bring new players into the into the fold. 
No, that's great. I, one thing I was thinking about when you're talking there is the core has a tribal partnership program and expanding those partnerships. And, and when I was working for, for St. Paul district, we kind of stumbled across it on accident. Like, Oh, here's this program that we weren't even aware of. And so communication within the core, and, and you talked about this earlier, the scale of the organization is, is just huge. And the challenge of communicating all of the great things we do when they're kind of scattered in these little program pots all over the place. you got the Tribal Partnership Program, the commun- uh, Continuing Authorities Program, Planning Assistance to States. And then you have our, our standard programs for flood risk, ecosystem, and navigation. But it, it's really hard as an agency, I think, to communicate concisely with our partners and be able to have everybody, not only internal, but external, understand all the things that we are capable of doing and working together. So expanding those partnerships in the future, I think, is really important. And, and one thing I think we've seen with partnerships, and I kind of want to ask you about is, over the history of the core, you know, pre-1986, it used to be very federally driven. And then we kind of got more in the partnership realm. And and then I think we talked about like the Fargo-Moorhead partnership and where the sponsors are delivering a large portion of that project within their control. And it just seems like the core over time has transitioned now to more of the partnering agency. And I feel like the, the time is right for that. But where do you see us going in the future uh, with partnering and with the organization? Well, I, I feel we've certainly showed a lot of success with partnership. One is you know, these these things need to be community-owned. You need the community buy-in. And, and what better way to do it than um, initiating these partnerships? So I, I'm i optimistic um, that partnerships will, will, will grow. We can you know strengthen the tools to enhance partnership. And, and let's be honest, uh, right now, partnerships matter more than, than ever when we have our regular budget cycle going on. But on top of that, you, you lay on disaster relief funding, and now we've got an infrastructure bill, an infrastructure bill which triples our annual appropriations. And the best way for us to um, be successful in making a difference in the communities that we support is through the partnership, making sure that um, our mission is in alignment with their vision. So I see it. There's only one way to go with partnerships and that's to keep growing them. So as you've been acting uh, assistant secretary of the Army for Civil Works, you've been traveling around and seeing the different parts of the Corps. And, you know, can you talk a little bit about your travels and some of the great things that you have um, seen uh, across the enterprise? A consistency in all of my trips, and I really appreciate uh, the ability to do this, is to engage in the partners. Every trip that I've been on, we, we found uh, ways to interact and engage with, um, like Fargo Moorhead, with, with our partners from the city and um, the flood district, you know, in, in the Everglades, uh, ad- additional partners. So I am always impressed with, with the, the level of support from the partnerships and the fact that, um, you know, they have faith in the relationship uh, with the Corps. So, so that's, that's always been a good thing to see. The other thing that was <laughs> another eye-opening uh, is just this this diversity of assets that we're called upon to manage. You know, I didn't realize that um, we are the uh, owners and operators of, of huge dredges that we need to continually work to, to get replaced, that we own bridges in the United States. So uh want to just find these very unique tasks that uh, are connected to the Army Corps. 
Yeah, that's great. And I think I've, I've heard something like the core owns more than $250 billion worth of assets that we operate and maintain at any given time. So it's, it's pretty broad mission. And, and in your, you know, you know, visits to some of these places, um, obviously you've, you've learned a lot about the core and the breadth of the core, but what would you want, what do you want to tell staff or what do you tell staff at each of these locations to inspire them about the missions that they work for and really, you know, the things that you're passionate about? Again, it, it goes back to you know where I, where I come from and what I try to stress and encourage the the staff on the ground uh, is, is to look about how can we better engage communities, especially underrepresented communities. And, and I've shared that um, I was always reluctant to say that we're there to empower communities because I don't believe that's the fact because these communities that always had their own source of power. And that power is both formal and informal. They have the power in how they pick their, their spokespeople, their leaders, how they pick the causes that are important to them, how they even organize themselves uh, as a community, and even the capacity they build. You know, and, and we're seeing this power. We're, we're recognizing that they do have this power and the elevation of their voices, you know, we're seeing this very strategic and sophisticated development of alliances that they're doing with all sectors, whether it's public, private, nonprofit, business groups, environmental groups, even celebrities and elected officials from other states that are rallying to support them in their issues. So believe me, they've got the power. And for us, it's you know, how do we develop this, this linkage with them to you know, to be very sincere in our listening. And again, let me reflect on you know, educated as a forester. And I had this tendency to walk into a community believing that I was the expert in forestry and all they had to do was put their faith and trust in me. For me, that I learned that that was the wrong approach because each of these communities had a gift and wisdom to share with me. And what I needed to do was be uh, better in my listening to, to make sure that you know, my profession, to the best of my ability, how do we align my profession with the vision and goals that they have in mind? You know, they've got a future. They've got an outcome. What role did I play in helping them achieve that outcome? That's what I hope that as, as we try to engage these, these communities around climate change and, and especially the disadvantaged communities that the uh, are fighting to have their voices heard is that we come in with, with a new way of listening and really accept what they're sharing with us as gifts that will help us in understanding, help us in learning, and really help us in better decision-making for a shared future. That's easy to say, but it's really difficult at times to do. Yes, for sure. Um, I know that one of the the things that the revolutionized uh, USA Civil Works team has been doing is making sure that we regularly and proactively reach out uh, to our partners and just listen to them. Um, you know, we don't have to have the answers, but it's important to hear from them and what they envision for each of the projects and for the, the water resources around their area. So we really appreciate you talking with us this afternoon and we're nearing the end of our time together. And so we just wanna ask if, if there's anything else that you would like to tell staff or let our listeners know. Okay. Well, if I could share something. So I was able to speak with many of the Corps regulators last week at a, at a session they were doing and 
and I, I, I want to close by saying this, that I have faith that the Army Corps brand will endure. <laughs> Unlike the icons, and I use the examples like uh, Eastman Kodak, Blockbuster Videos, Borders Bookstores, all great brands, yet they struggled to adapt. But the core, you know, our brand is going to endure. And I, I hope that people in this time of change that they don't feel anxious about it. What I want them to feel is excited to be leaders in change. Yeah, I think it's been really exciting to have you here on the podcast and to hear you talk about change and partnership. And and I think that that's really important and really working together with the communities that we serve and trying to to do good and achieve their visions, um, which will make us better as an organization as a whole. So I really want to thank you, Mr. Pinkham, for joining us today for this edition of Inside the Castle. We appreciate you and your insights. To our listeners, we want to hear from you, what topics are important to you and people you're interested in hearing from. Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary. To provide your feedback, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the core and revolutionize civil works together.